You might notice what it's like in the mind where there's a sense of waiting. Uh, start with a story just really um, for a little levity. I think sometimes we need a little levity, this space. So there was a couple um, who lived in Minnesota and they were planning a vacation to Florida to celebrate their 25th anniversary and they were going to stay in the same sort of you know, modest, slightly run-down hotel that they had stayed in to commemorate this silver anniversary. Both the, both of the, the husband and the wife were both quite busy and traveled a lot for their work. So uh, the only way they could work out the schedule was that the husband, Don, would go ahead before and then uh, Mary would join him a day later. So um, this is in the early days of the internet and Don arrived at the hotel and many of you will remember the days where the internet, the hotel having internet met, there was a terminal in the lobby and you could log into your email account and send emails. So he saw there was this terminal in the lobby and he got really excited and he said, you know, I should send Mary an email. Wouldn't that be great? So he... uh, logged into his AOL account and uh, typed in her email address. Uh, Fortunately, he mistyped one of the numbers in her email address. Instead of Mary 50905, he typed Mary 90506. So his email went to a completely different Mary And the Mary that uh, his email went to was a woman whose husband had just died. And she was coming home from the wake. Her husband was a kind of fire and brimstone preacher, and he just prematurely dropped dead of a heart attack in his 40s. And uh, so she'd come home from the wake, and she was sort of grieving, and she logged into her email Actually, she got her teenage son to help her log into her email so she could uh, you know, see what well wishes had come from people and so on. And so her teenage son helped her log into her email account, and then he went into the room, and then he heard a scream and a thud of his mom fainting. And then he came in, and he read the email, and it said... Dearest Mary, I've arrived today. I know you're probably surprised to hear from me, but they have internet here now, so I thought I'd sent you an email. Everything has been prepared for your arrival tomorrow. Looking forward to seeing you then. Dearest Don, P.S. sure is hot down here.
I really loved um, Luigi's expression of making ourselves available to experience. I just love the feeling of that, like, uh, <clears throat> you know, like we would make ourselves available to a loved one or make ourselves available to an opportunity. Um, and it reminded me of a quote from Mark Nepo that I'd like to share. He says, when we hesitate in being direct, we unknowingly slip something on, some added layer of protection that keeps us from feeling the world. And often that thin covering is the beginning of a loneliness, which if not put down, diminishes our chances of joy. It's like wearing gloves every time we touch something and then forgetting we chose to put them on, we complain that nothing feels quite real. Our challenge each day is not to get dressed, to face the world, but rather to unglove ourselves so the doorknob feels cold and the car handle feels wet and the kiss goodbye feels like the lips of another being, soft and unrepeatable. I wasn't really sure what to talk about tonight, so I'm going to hit on a number of topics. Um, one thing I wanted to describe is, you know, the, the path of practice and the teachings of the Buddha, many, many teachings, many maps of the mind. One of the primary teachings is the Eightfold Path, which is a really broad, encompassing teaching. And in that path of practice, the meditation cultivation is one quarter of the path. Wise concentration, wise mindfulness, that's primarily what we've been practicing here. Uh, and there's so much else in this path of awakening. Sometimes it's said that the, the path of awakening has three pillars. There's sila, samadhi, and panya. Sila, we talked about at the beginning of this, this retreat, being an integrity, being a safe person in the world, giving others the gift of fearlessness. Um, and it, in the Buddha's worldview, it's not a moralistic, you know, you should do this because whatever, but it's more the recognition that uh, when we don't act in integrity, that has ripple effects. It affects us internally. It affects uh, our state of being, our state of mind. Uh, the Buddha talked about the bliss of blamelessness, that when we act with no blame, we can relax. There's no skeletons to hide or worrying about being discovered. Um, and then when we act out of integrity also, it ripples out and it affects other beings in, in ways that aren't in alignment with the basic principle of the path, which is non-harming. Sila, then there's samadhi, that's the meditative practice, cultivating a steadiness of mind, and then cultivating with that steady steadiness of mind, the mind that sees the, the way things actually are, not the way we think they should be, or we wish they were, but how they actually are. And the third uh, pillar is panya, or wisdom. So... Uh, you might say samadhi is the cultivation of how we are, our quality of being, our steadiness of mind, the sense of ease in this moment. Sila is how we conduct ourselves, 
what we're doing. And then Panya relates to what we know and what we learn, the deepest levels of our being, not the intellectual knowing of the maps of the mind, although that certainly helps. It's something much deeper, a way in which we live, a way in which we embody the teachings. We don't just practice Dharma, we become some living expression of Dharma. Uh, I often think of the wise people, uh, you know, like I've been in circumstances where uh, I'm supposed to be the wise person and I'm kind of looking around the room for people that are wiser than me. Because there's a sense that with this wisdom, you know what's called for. You know how to respond to the moment. You develop this capacity for an appropriate response that maximizes well-being and minimizes suffering. So the seminal teaching of the Buddha is the Four Noble Truths. And... uh, Well, maybe I'll just say what they are. So the first truth is there is dukkha. I'll describe what that word means. Suffering, you could say, for shorthand. Uh, That's the first noble truth. The second noble truth is suffering is caused by clinging, grasping, aversion. The third noble truth is there is the possibility of the release of clinging. And the fourth is that there's an eightfold path that is the path of practice that leads to freedom from clinging and freedom from suffering. Sometimes it's described in a medical model that the diagnosis is life is hard. The, uh, the uh, ideology or the cause of the disease is uh, grasping and clinging. The prognosis is good. The patient can be cured. And the Eightfold Path is the medicine that we take to effectuate the cure. So these Four Noble Truths, they are on one level declarations of insight. And the Buddha realized there is dukkha. This word dukkha means, the etymology is like an axle that's off kilter. So like pretty bumpy ride because it's not smooth. And it refers to a broad dimension of experience from like something just not quite right into in this moment, or um, you know the extremes of suffering that we might experience. Suffering, stress, uh, unsatisfactoriness. These are some of the words that are used to describe this experience. And it goes a little bit back to um, what we were talking about with Vedana, you know, like trying to get it just right, uh, arranging the furniture in a way that somehow everything will be okay. Uh, It reminds me of a story I heard on a podcast. There was someone from the, uh, who had been a young staffer on the John F. Kennedy administration, and he said that when they would fly on the Air Force One, the president's airplane, he'd always complain that it was too cold. And if you've ever talked to pilots or crew, they deliberately keep the plane pretty cool because they're running around, they're cooking, it's hot in the kitchen, and also keeping it cooler 
people are more likely to sleep so they don't bother you, and people are less likely to get motion sick. So there's a lot of reasons that uh, it's so cold when you go on the airplane. But, you know, when the president is asking, you kind of have to do something. So they installed this box on the president's desk in the flying oval office, and it had knobs on it, and they told the president, you know, you can turn these knobs and it'll, you know, make it warmer. And uh, so he, you know, the staffer observed that he was constantly fiddling with the knobs, but he never once complained about it being cold again in the in the plane. And then it turns out that that box wasn't connected to anything. <laughs> but somehow the activity of fiddling with the knobs satisfied him in some way. or some need to fiddle with the knobs. I experience this very much on retreat. You know, how often am I trying to just massage my experience? Just a little bit more of this, a little bit less of that. But the Buddha's insight was that it's all ultimately unsatisfactory. Because it's always changing, because it doesn't last. Um, that there's no, he said there's actually no thing in this realm of conditions where objects come into existence through causes and conditions that will lead to any kind of lasting satisfaction. So that's the insight, that this is the nature of human existence. And, you know, on one level it's kind of obvious, but I remember when I heard this teaching, I was relieved. Because I had, I think someone else said this, one of my colleagues said this, but I had this understanding that whenever I was suffering, it had been some mistake of strategy, something I wasn't doing wrong, some character defect. And then to hear, oh, well, you know, this is, this is kind of how it is. There's this modicum of suffering that comes with the package of being in a human incarnation was profoundly relieving to me. Along with the declaration of insight or the realization of the reality of this conditioned world, there are practice instructions. So it's not just a truth in the sense of uh, that it's true, but there also comes with it uh, meditation instructions. And the instructions are that suffering is to be understood that we can become more intimate with our suffering. We've all been doing this. We've been talking about it, opening to the streams of energy that flow through the, the pleasant and the unpleasant and the afflictive and feeling into where the pain is in an experience in this sort of embodied, visceral way. And it's not, you know, to suffer more or to suffer better, but it's more like because this enterprise is connected with freedom from this kind of suffering, there's a, I think that's why they call it, he called them the noble truth. It's ennobling in some way. So this is what we've been talking about the whole retreat. You notice a moment of not quite right, moment of unpleasant, moment of physical pain. This is what it feels like in the body. Investigating that experience with granularity and precision. Where is there tension? Where is the energy blocked? 
Does the experience have a location? Does it have a shape? Does it have a color, a sound? What's the quality of the energy? Is it vibratory and pulsing? Is it swirling or swirling and vibrating? Showering energy sometimes people have. Coolness, heat, how's it changing? Where is the pleasant and the unpleasant or the neutral? Quite often if I'm having a a mental experience that's unpleasant, the unpleasantness isn't as much in the mind as it is in the clenching of the jaw or the tightening of the chest or the lifting of the shoulders. Becoming intimate both with the experience and then how the experience, the various ways in which the experience manifests in the body. Noticing the attitude of the mind. You know, what is the mind filled with desire? Is the mind filled with aversion? Is the mind scattered? Is the mind gathered? This sort of like, it's like the color of the glasses we're wearing as we go through the world that color our experience. And it's kind of beneath the level of thought, sometimes requires some uh, investigation to see what really is the state of mind at this moment. So identifying and then opening, relaxing, allowing, inviting spaciousness around the experience, inviting the body to be at ease, even in uh, something difficult is present, softening, nurturing ourselves in some way. Quite often we'll, in a moment of difficulty, place the hand on the chest, say kind words to myself. And we only have to rest with the experience for this moment. Some people were remarking at the beginning of the retreat, like, you know, you look at the schedule and you're like, how am I going to get through this? And you get through it moment by moment. It's really the only way you can get through it. And we do this investigation, this building intimacy with what's difficult, what's painful, what's unpleasant, not to make it go away. This is a really important point. It's kind of like if you had a child who's sick with a fever, you know, you might put a cold compress on their head, you might hold them, you might sing to them or say sweet things to them. And we don't really believe that that's going to cure the fever, but we do it because we care. And there is medicine in that caring, but it's not, uh, it's a gentle, sweet medicine. <laughs> so, one of my favorite poems is this poem, Allow, by Dana Fowles. There's no controlling life. Try corralling a lightning bolt containing a tornado. Dam a stream and it will create new channels. Resist, and the tide will sweep you off your feet. Allow, and grace will carry you to higher ground. The only safety lies in letting it all in. The wild, the weak, fear, fantasies, failures, and successes. When loss rips off the doors of the heart, or sadness fills your vision with de- despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth. When loss rips off the doors of the heart or sadness veils your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth. 
your choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your new eyes. So we can aspire to develop this capacity to be present and available and open to the full range of life's experience. And it also takes sometimes some building of our capacity. And we all have a kind of a a zone of tolerance, the amount of intensity, and and it varies for each of us, depending on the causes and conditions that... um, very helpful to keep us in that zone of tolerance so that we're not overwhelmed or we're not shut down. And this happens with practice. You've all been expanding your window of tolerance. When you stay relatively still or you stay in the room, even though every fiber of your being wants to bolt for the door, you're building the capacity to be with the energy of restlessness, which is unpleasant or an itch that you don't scratch. Or maybe you feel the itch and then you scratch it very mindfully instead of mindlessly. Or maybe the feet are a little numb and you just kind of are like with numbness, feeling that sensation. And breaking the habit pattern of automatically adjusting to fully experience what's happening before we make adjustments. And I I liken this very much to going to the gym. You know, if you want to get strong, the weights have to be heavy enough that there's some challenge to them. So we can have some resolve to build our fortitude. But at the same time, if the weights are too heavy, we get injured. So if we dive in without, with abandon, and uh, then we we can become overwhelmed and it's actually not helpful. And the more we can infuse this awareness with uh, this quality of metta, this quality of caring, quality of tenderness, the more it supports us in bearing what otherwise might be um, less bearable. So the first noble truth, there is suffering. Suffering is to be understood. And the second Noble truth is um, the cause of suffering suffering is clinging. Clinging, sometimes craving, aversion, different uh, teachings on this. The word that's predominantly used is this word tanha, which means thirst. Kind of like, I love the, I had a very visceral feeling when I say the word thirst of that, that, you know, when you're really parched and just longing for that. Uh, the painfulness of that, actually, when you just, you know, you just want a drink of water. It's making me thirsty. And the Buddha described various kinds of clinging. Um, clinging for sense desires. So we want pleasant experience. We want pleasant sights, pleasant sounds, pleasant tastes, pleasant tactile experiences and uh, pleasant thoughts. So wouldn't that be great? (laughs) 
But that's not the nature of experience. You know, they're not, the nature of experience is that it comes in waves. That there's, there's pleasant, there's unpleasant, there's neutral. What we perceive as pleasant and unpleasant and neutral is constantly shifting. It may be different for each of us. You know, you might like electronic dance music. I might not. For me, it's unpleasant. For you, it's pleasant. But then if you're trying to sleep, EDM is probably unpleasant. If uh, the first piece of pie, delicious, second piece of pie, a little less so, by the third or fourth piece of pie, you're starting to feel sick. So it's even that judgment that we are so quick to make is constantly in flux. What's pleasant, what's unpleasant. So clinging for sense desires also comes with this sort of hidden paradigm that the satisfaction of the sense desire will be lasting. I could only have that cookie right now, that cupcake, everything would be okay. Intellectually, we know this is not true, that the satisfaction of those sense desires is fleeting. and There's nothing wrong with that. The Buddha never said, don't, that sense desires are bad or one shouldn't have pleasant sense desires. He just cautioned against getting attached to pleasant sense desires and believing that they would be a panacea in some way. There's also the clinging for becoming, that energy of who we want to be, what we want to be, what we want to acquire, status or fame or even we can even get attached to the idea of being a good meditator or a good person. And not to confuse the like there's wholesomeness in this desire to be awakened, to be more skilled at uh, tending to and taming the mind, to be kind and generous and compassionate. But when we're wrapped up in that identity, then it uh, when we're clinging to that, when we're thirsting for that, it becomes a cause of suffering. Sometimes you feel the opposite, the clinging for non-existence or clinging to, like, to not be the, who we don't want to be alive or the parts of us that we want to deny, um, the parts of us we want to get rid of. Clinging to views, this is my favorite, because I have a lot of views. I'm very attached to them. (laughs) The need to be right, the need to uh, impose your views on other people. Uh, This is a source of so much human conflict that we get. So, And you see it highlighted so much in this moment of time where there's such attachment to views. And the attachment is so strong that we even vilify people who have opposing views. This is another thing that leads to suffering. Clinging to conceit. So in the Buddhist uh, interpretation, conceit is uh, I'm better than, I'm worse than, or I'm the same as. So you might think, well, what that, that covers all the bases. Like what's left? I'm either better than or worse than or same as. And really the point is that we don't play the comparison game. That there's no, the comparison game only leads to suffering. (laughs) 
And so when there's a moment of suffering, like as a practical matter, when there's a moment of suffering, you can drop in an investigation to illuminate what it is that's being clung to or craved for. A whole bunch of these that I have um, written on the sheet, and you could probably come up with your own. What is it that I think I need in this moment? What do I want in this moment? How do I think it should be in this moment? What should be happening now? What shouldn't be happening now? What needs fixing? And what am I afraid of? Fear also has this quality that's very similar to compulsive desire. It's like very hard to let go of fear. And I found this to be profoundly helpful, actually, when I could remember to do it. You know, that's, the, that's the thing about all these things. Like when there's a base le- level, baseline level of mindfulness, then we can remember uh, how to practice. And that's why I'm a strong proponent of uh, daily mindfulness practice, 30, 45 minutes a day, is what I find is... Uh, for me, it's 45 minutes to an hour a day. I just find that I'm more available. I'm going to keep using that, more available for my life uh, when I have that baseline level of continuous mindfulness. And so there's a moment of, there's a moment of constriction or a moment of contraction. What am I, you know, sometimes I go, what am I clinging to in this moment? This too, and, and maybe it can be released in that moment, and then there's like, the suffering evaporates. But even if it can't be released, you're illuminating a pattern. You're bringing mindfulness to a pattern. And even in that pattern, you know, if you're practicing the first noble truth, you're becoming really intimate with the ouch in the pattern. And that's an incredible catalyst for the energy of letting go. There's a... um, there's a teaching where the Buddha talks about, it's almost like it's sometimes translated as a feeling of disgust that you just like, ah, enough. I've been down this road so many times. Let's choose a different way. But I have a story, a poem or something that illustrates that. Let's see, where is that? Maybe I do. Yeah, here we go. This is called Autobiography in Five Chapters. Chapter one. I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I'm lost. I'm hopeless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault. It's just a habit. It takes a long time to get out. Chapter three. I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it's there, but I still fall in. My eyes are open. I know where I am. It is my fault, and I get out immediately. 
Chapter four. I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter five. I walk down another street. I feel like the the Dharma practice is very much like that. You know, there's this kind of repetitive uh, quality to it that we, you know, we keep trying, we keep bumping up against habit patterns, but we just keep we keep walking until we keep walking the path until uh, wisdom arises. That that seeing the hole in the sidewalk is the beginning of wisdom. Walking around it, it's the maturing of wisdom. And not even going down that street is kind of like the fruition of wisdom. So there is suffering. Suffering is to be understood. The cause of suffering is clinging, grasping, aversion. Clinging, grasping, aversion are to be understood, to be seen. And then the third noble truth is that there's the possibility of freedom from clinging, grasping, and aversion. And this happens all the time. All the time in our experience, we can go from a moment of constriction to a moment of freedom. In fact, when you start tuning in, it's like really happening all the time. Letting go is always happening all the time. So we know how to do it uh, intuitively. And to savor even those simple moments where there's some freedom, to build a kind of muscle memory, to build like, okay, this is what it feels like when the mind is not stuck in desire. Like I'm not hindered by all the things that I want or think I need, or this is a moment where there's no restlessness and the body's in calm and at peace. This is a moment where I have tremendous confidence in myself and the path and humanity, you know, to savor that, uh, remember it, we're inviting in all experience, we tend to sometimes overemphasize the difficult experience because the tendency is to look away, but there's fruition in bringing it all in. So we, we get markers for what's possible when the heart is free, we develop a kind of familiarity with that, makes it more easy for that state to arise in the future. And then the fourth noble truth is that there's this whole path of practice, eight folds of the path are really for this express purpose of freeing ourselves. And it's for beyond the scope of a short talk to go into them all. But just to say that if you study this map and if you're interested in this, I, I strongly encourage it, then you begin to see that The path of practice certainly includes meditation because if you don't have mindfulness, you're not going to remember any of this. You don't have mindfulness. We're just caught in the stream of karma, the stream of habits, the stream of our society. Um, So that's why developing mindfulness is often preferenced in these communities because it's essential for any, any practice to be effective. But once you learn this map, then practice effortlessly um, begins to pervade your whole life. Because one of the path factors is why speech. Like, how often are we speaking? 
Um, wise action, how often are we ac- ac- acting? Wise effort, how often are we efforting? Wise view, how often are we entangled in views and thoughts and beliefs? And so the path of practice becomes moments and moments of path activity. Every, every moment of, of wise mindfulness, every moment of wise speech, speech that's kind and beneficial and pleasant, non-divisive, not idle, every moment of wise view, seeing the ephemeral nature of all experience, these accumulate, it's like we're filling up our bucket drop by drop, and more opportunities to practice than just sitting quietly with your eyes closed, which I love and encourage. Um, more study can open up a much larger dimension of the terrain in which we can practice. It's been said more than once that all experience arises in this field of knowing, this field of awareness. And it's interesting to me that when a sound arises, I usually don't think my sound. When a sight arises, I usually don't think my sight. When a smell arises, I usually think that's my smell. But maybe because there is a sense of interiority to thoughts, when thoughts arise, emotions arise, very quick to claim them as our own. Very quick to identify thought, to identify with thoughts, and also to take thoughts as a kind of irrefutable, factual proclamation. And I've gotten really intimate with my thoughts, and you know, maybe this is a little flip to say, but most of them are garbage. <laughs> You know, it's like the same things that I'm fretting about over and over again. The, the same, you know, there's like the top 12 that just recycle and repeat. And, um, you know, there can be moments of a beautiful thought or beautiful clarity. But I think more and more I've found freedom in just not giving thoughts so much credence especially the idle thoughts that happen in the background. You know, if I'm thinking and I'm engaged in a creative process or problem-solving exercise, then that's a little different. Um, Our thoughts can torment us, and yet, what is a thought? Where is it located in space? What's the mass of a thought? It's a tiny flicker of energy in a neural network, that arises from causes and conditions and then fades away, constantly arising and fading away. They come and go like clouds in the sky. The Buddha said, so should you see all of this fleeting world, a star at dawn, a bubble in the stream, a flash of lightning in a summer cloud, a flickering lamp, a phantom and a dream. And our inability to perceive this uh, is a cause of so much suffering. For me, this is actually sufficient impetus to practice every day, uh, whenever I can, just to get this baseline uh, level of mindfulness to be able to pop the trance of thought when I notice that it's leading me astray. 
I'm going to talk more about the motivation of uh, motivation for meditation, but first I want to wave a caution flag uh, at the notion of self-improvement. Uh, when there used to be bookstores, there were shelves and shelves and shelves in the self-improvement section, and I will admit I spent a lot of time in that section of the bookstore and got a lot of benefit out of it. But I think there's a way in which in our culture, self-improvement has almost become a kind of self-negation. You know, it's always like 21 steps to a better you. You know, well, kind of like the me I have right now. <laughs> Some sense that we have to be something else. We have to be thinner. We have to be stronger. We have to be mentally more agile. We have to, you know, whatever it is. You pick a topic. Someone's figured out how to be better at it. So I want to share a quote from Jim Sinclair. He's a prominent activist for the autistic community. Uh, and it's not to say anything about autism. I don't have a basis to do that. But I heard these words and they struck a unique chord because I've kind of heard versions of these in my own mind. So I'd like to share them with you. He says, when parents say, I wish my child did not have autism, what they're really saying is, I wish the child I have did not exist and I had a different non-autistic child instead. This is what we hear when you mourn over our existence. This is what we hear when you pray for a cure, that your fondest wish for us is that someday we will cease to be and strangers that you can love will move in behind our faces. Every time I hear these words, and I share them often, I, it's like a kick in the gut because so many times I've felt that stream of like wanting to negate who I am in favor of some new, improved, better version of me that would you know, be more lovable. So when these self-afflictive scripts, the inner critic, negative self-talk appear, this is a very important moment to notice. And when we have enough mindfulness as a baseline, we can see the ouch of those thoughts arising and we can pivot. One thing that I think that happens on retreat for a lot of people, especially the first time, uh, is that we can have um, experiences that are not often accessible in normal busyness of life. You know, we, even for moments, we can touch into a profound peacefulness. We can touch into stillness. Uh, there can be feelings of expansive love or well-being. And it doesn't always happen, but many of you have described these experiences. They come and they go. That's the thing about experiences. They come and they go. And sometimes we get the idea that that's what this practice is about, to engender those kinds of altered states and experiences, which are quite pleasant. But I think what's really much more important is cultivating traits, qualities of being that are more, uh, become more embodied. It's more of like how we are than how this moment is. And when I was a small child, I grew up in Huntsville, Alabama. And when I was a small child, five, five years old, my father joined a little Zen community. It was unusual. This Korean Zen master had an idea of starting 
I think it was like 300 monastery, 300 centers he started, and he wanted them to be in far-flung places, kind of outside of urban centers. And so it's a little Zen community, and, you know, I, my parents were, you know, they, they took me everywhere. They just didn't care about the American culture's ideas of where children should be. So here I am, five years old, in a group full of adults who are all sitting facing the wall with their eyes closed. And uh, I was a very mischievous child, so I would uh, get in people's faces and kind of do this or blow on them. Or sometimes I'd sit in someone's lap and I'd feel like a gentle embrace and then I'd squirm and then I'd feel a release. And it was such a profound feeling of like permission to be a child. No one ever said anything uh, or tried to correct me in any way or fix my behavior in any way. And they were very attentive. I didn't know this is what they were practicing, but I had a lot to say at that age, and not very many people were willing to listen. And I remember I could just talk and talk and talk, and some these people would just, like, they would be with me. They'd come down to my level and really attend. And it was a beautiful experience. A lot of laughter and levity in that group. Uh, it profoundly impacted me, so profoundly impacted me that... Uh, when my life became difficult, that became a barometer of the quality of being I wanted to have and led me back onto the path of meditation. So the Korean Zen master came to visit one time from, uh, he, I think he spent most of his time traveling around to the different centers. It's very exciting, you know, the teacher is going to come give a teaching and uh, my father and I went and picked him up for the airport and he was a bubbly bullion guy. He'd been described as ancient, ancient to me, but I think he was probably 70. And uh, just smiling and laughing and just very lighthearted. And so we got to the place where the Sangha met and uh, it was a little house that they rented. And uh, he bounded out of the car and he bounded across the lawn with his big robes on. He bounded up this half a flight of steps and then he was going to bound into the room where the sangha met, uh, but he didn't realize that the screen door was closed. (laughs) And in the most cartoonish way, he bounced off the screen door, rolled down a couple half flights, rolled across the lawn, and was lying unconscious face up (laughs) on the driveway. Like, this is just like a, I remember the stillness of that moment as everyone's just in complete and utter shock. What just happened? Did that, that really just happen? And there was so much irreverence in this group that I just loved that someone in the Sangha said in a maybe slightly overdone Southern accent, crap, we done gone killed the master. <laughs> <laughs> and so we're all laughing, you know, it was, it was inevitable. And, and as the master was coming, uh, as a, the teacher was coming to, he uh, you know, so many ways you could respond in that situation. Embarrassment, shame, blame, anger. He just started laughing. And then he was laughing. And then he was laughing. And then we were all laughing. And it was such a beautiful transmission of a quality of being where he met that very embarrassing and very painful situation with this quality of ebullience. 
And I remember vividly, uh, this is my most vivid memory from that age, that uh, later in the, he was talking, and I, you know, I didn't know what they were talking about, but he, he was holding his elbow. He would like hold his elbow, and then he would kind of chuckle. And he hold hold the side, and he kind of chuckle. <laughs> it's a powerful Dharma transmission to see to be in the field of someone who has uh, acquired that quality of being. So what sparks motivation to practice? Uh, Many things. Sometimes it's our own suffering, our life is hard, we struggle, we want to be free. Uh, More people than not, I think, come to the Dharma for some sense of wanting freedom and being aware and in tune with suffering. And then if that's your doorway in, then the first noble truth becomes very relatable because that's, hey, that's why I'm here, you know, to, to reduce this feeling of mental anguish and suffering. Sometimes there's a kind of disenchantment that happens. This has happened to me in various t- times of life where, you know, we're just kind of like life is like the same old thing and we're sort of questioning, you know, what's the purpose of all this, you know, whatever you're doing just loses some of its meaning and you want something that's like more meaningful. This sometimes happens after a loss. This sometimes happens after extended periods of practice. I remember I I did a two-month retreat here and then I'd taken a three-month sabbatical and my plan for the third month was to do a lot of traveling and visit a lot of old friends and see movies and go to restaurants and just things I really enjoyed at that time in my life. And after two months of retreat, none of it seemed enticing at all. So I canceled the trip and I spent another month basically on retreat. One of the primary motivations for a practice for me comes from a contemplation that the Buddha suggested called the five subjects for frequent recollection. And um, it's often done as a chant, so I'm going to just chant it for you. I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. I am of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. This is, that's four of them, and it's like the, the tough truth of what it is to be a human being. Like, just the facts, you know? As much as we might want to deny them, they're all facts of life. And then it pivots. Uh, So the last one is, I am the owner of my kama, heir to my kama, born of my kama, related to my kama, abides supported by my kama, Whatever comma I shall do, for good or for ill, 
of that I will be the heir. Thus, we should frequently recollect. There's a online, it's not really online, there's a uh, tech version of this. There's an app I have on my phone. It's called We Croak. And five times a day, it, it, I get a notification, shows up on my watch, and it says, don't forget, you're going to die. <laughs> and it sounds a little bit morbid to the Western sensibility, but I cannot tell you how liberating that has been for me. Because I'm in a moment of constriction, a moment of irritation. You know, my life's pretty good, so most of the things are petty. And... Uh, don't forget, you're going to die. It's much easier to, okay, it's fine. Whatever it is, it's fine. Am I going to be worried about this on my deathbed? And if, it's, if I'm not, then I can let it go. So kama, kama is the Pali version of karma. And uh, unlike the vernacular, we talk about karma kind of in the the result of things, you know, like we might say, oh, that person had such bad karma because this thing happened to them. The the Buddha's way of talking about it was quite different. He spoke of karma as the actions of body, speech, and mind. The teaching of karma is that our actions of body, speech, and mind have results, they have impacts. And so this is where all of the agency of this practice comes in. More and more moments we have of mindfulness, the more and more... Um, agency we have in deciding how we want to go through this life, how we want to act, how we want to speak, and ultimately even to some degree what thoughts we're going to highlight and what thoughts we're going to not pay attention to. The Buddha said, all experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind. Speak or act with a corrupted mind and suffering follows as the wagon wheel falls, follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. And this, this realization that how we speak, how we act, the thoughts, patterns that we develop, uh, Affect our affect us in all dom- domains. Affect us, you know, how we go through life today to day, how we feel, how um, I can't actually. There's no domain I can think of where it isn't affected by that. Another way the Buddha talked about karma was whatever a person frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. Whatever a person frequently thinks or ponders upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. Neuroscientists might say neurons that wire together, fire together, that we're we're literally on the level of anatomy, building new neural pathways that are more and more efficient to achieve whatever it is we're doing with our mind. So if we're practicing an instrument or learning a new language, you know, it's great. Like we're building more efficiency at doing that task. Um, but we're always practicing something. Just by using our mind, we're always practicing something. And if we're not intentional about what we're practicing, then we're practicing whatever's in the stream of our culture, 
our world, our family, the people we're around, um, the things that capture our attention, the way our neurology is designed, the things that capture attention are things that are scary and stressful. <laughs> I saw a uh, obvious clickbait the other day, and it said, these three foods you eat every day are ruining your health. Like, I know this is a scam, but there's no way I'm not going to click on that. <laughs> the mavens of the internet, the people that are trying to capture our attention to sell us things, they know this. So, so much of what's in the ether of our society is alarming and scary and frightening. And... Uh, if we're not intentional about cultivating calmness, stability, loving kindness, beautiful qualities of heart, then we're just practicing what's in the ether. And it's not helpful. And there's a way in which karma is not even forward-looking. Like, karma is unfolding in this moment. One practice I've been doing is... uh, from time to time, especially if there's a moment of constriction, a moment of complaint. My mind has a lot of complaints. Um, I'll drop in the question, what am I practicing in this moment? When I'm practicing complaining, I'm just becoming really good at complaining. And the better you become at complaining, the less it is to be satisfied with the world because you just see all the things that are wrong with it. I'm almost out of time. I'll share one more thing. Um, I very much think of meditation as an art. You've heard this from me many times. Um, saying from the, uh, the restless, agitated mind, hard to protect, hard to control, the sage makes straight as the fletcher the shaft of an arrow. My friend Temple Smith, colleague and friend, said, uh, was telling me that, you know, Now, arrows are probably made in a factory out of fiberglass or whatever, but in the old days, they were made of wood. It's very difficult to find things in nature that are perfectly straight. So to make an arrow, you have to find the right piece of wood. You have to very carefully craft it so that it's perfectly circular because perfectly circular things don't usually exist in nature. And it's never going to quite be straight. So what they used to do is they would steam the wood and the Fletcher would just keep adjusting it until he could see that it was perfectly straight. So it's quite a, a patient process. It requires a lot of dedication. It requires a, a skill that has been cultivated to know how to do all that. Uh, and I very much feel like the practice of meditation, the practice of, of taming the restless, agitated mind is an art that we cultivate, that we're, that we're building these skills bit by bit. You've, you've all come to a boot camp, and when you get home, you'll realize how many things have come into consciousness. And I've been on this path for a long time, and I still feel like there are constantly new things that are unfolding. There's no end to... Uh, perfecting this art of uh, practice.
I mean, I stand with a poem or something. Let's see if I have something here. Uh, here's a good one. The Dakini speaks. A Dakini is a, uh, a muse, a spiritual muse, sometimes a celestial being, and uh, she's a little bit mischievous or gives you the straight truth. I have a lot of these in my life, so this poem speaks to me. My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here, or if we haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. Simple. How could you have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like ripe human beings, but please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child, she seems cruel, but really she's just wild, and her compassion exquisitely precise, brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth. She strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We are not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. Thank you for your kind attention. Thank you for your practice. It's time for dinner. Don't wait for me. I'm going to take my time here. <laughs>